Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there are some articles that i produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 8. The author has been trying to get across to these Hebrew Christians the magnitude of the person and the magnitude of the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ in our behalf, trying to get them to see that he is superior to everything they had in the Old Testament. Some of them were getting a little squeaky in their faith and thinking about turning back, and the author wants them to understand that that would be like going from a super jetliner back to a stagecoach. No comparison. At present, he's drawing the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he reminds them of what is there, and they should read. He wants them to understand that the whole system and the Old Testament hangs together, that when the priesthood has changed, and he showed that it has changed, it's gone from the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is a heavenly and permanent priesthood, that there's a necessity also of the change of the law because, as I say, it all goes together. He's showing that in the Old Testament, the New Covenant, erected upon better foundations and better promises, was prophesied by both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. In verse 8, he said God found fault with the Old Covenant, not because God made a mistake. The flaw in this law was not the law, but it was in the flesh of man, the unregenerate flesh, a heart of stone. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. A new covenant. He wants them to hear that, to recognize that. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. That is, with Moses on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out from the land of Egypt. That didn't work out very well. That was not God's fault. That was their fault. That was their fault because of their unregenerate hearts. They did not continue in my covenant. They did not keep the agreement. And the rebels, of course, were laid low in the wilderness. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, because of that. The deal was that if they did the law, they would live. They didn't do the law, they would die, and that's exactly what happened. But God says in verse 10, through the prophet Jeremiah, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. It's going to be totally different, so much better, so much better promises, so much more secure. I will put my laws into their minds, not on stone, but in their minds, their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and there will be no doubt about that. There will be no change in that equation or that relationship. And after that, under the new covenant system, they will not teach everyone, his fellow citizen, and everyone, his brother, know the Lord, just as a matter of legal indoctrination. For the effect of the new covenant will be, verse 11, all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. They'll stand in a justified relationship with me. But when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So take note of that. Don't go back. Now, let's not misunderstand the scope of this statement where he says, All my regenerate people with minds and hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit shall know me instinctively, not just the learned and the theologians, but from the least to the greatest of them. Here the Lord does not mean to say that there will no longer be any necessity of feeding the sheep. You remember Jesus told Peter, go feed my sheep. He's obviously not meaning to say that. He's not meaning to say that there will no longer be any need for sound and healthful teaching. Not at all. The simple point is that all those who are his new covenant people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, by virtue of the indwelling spirit and the work of regeneration under the new covenant, they will have minds and hearts so renewed and so enlightened by the Spirit of God that they will know instinctively the law of God. They will have renewed consciences and they will resonate with the Spirit of God. This does not have to be taught. It is there in the heart of every redeemed soul. That is the inner hook that all of us God-called teachers hang our teaching on. Now, there will be cognitive dissonance if we imagine that the circle of God's new covenant people is coextensive with all those sitting in church pews who profess to be God's people. Clearly, many church people do not know God from a bunny rabbit. They are blind and hard and corrupt and show little sign of regeneration, just like so many of those in the nation of Israel were not true Israelites. So it is that in local churches, many of those in their pews are church people and not God's people. The statements here in Jeremiah, that prophecy that we just read here in Hebrews chapter 8, it applies only to those who are truly regenerate, and a leading characteristic of those who are truly regenerate is the fact that they do give evidence of knowing and understanding the mind and heart of God. First Corinthians chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. For members of the New Covenant community, there is this gracious and unconditional promise. It will not go away. It will never be withdrawn because of any failures or shortcomings on our part. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Under the law, no such promise could be made. Under the law, the deal was simply do this and live, mess up, and you go down for the count. But for those who want to approach God... On a works or a merit basis, there's no place for mercy. One strike and you're out. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no maybes. Under the law, the best thing that can happen is that we look in a mirror, the mirror of the law, and we see our poverty, we see our futility, we see our helplessness, our lostness, and come to the end of ourselves and cast ourselves as repentant sinners on the grace and mercy of God available to us in Christ alone. But the terms of the new covenant in Christ are polar opposite. God promises to be merciful to all of our iniquities. 
God promises to remember our sin no matter how great no more. He can do that because the atoning blood of Christ covers those sins. We are fallen people. We are broken people. We are messed up people. And we can never in this earth get it all right. The promise of salvation is secure to us because the only thing that separates us from God is our sins. And Jesus Christ died for our sins. He became sin for us. He became our substitute. He took it all upon himself. Now let's not miss the forest here in the midst of the trees. God does not just say, okay, here's the new deal. I won't be sticky about deviations from my law like I was under the old regime. I'm going to loosen up a bit. Let's just say if you come to me hereafter under the new covenant, you're okay, I'm okay, I will forget everything wrong you ever did. I'll turn a blind eye to every mess you make in the future. Isn't that nice of me? No, 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 that's not the case. Don't misunderstand. I say again, the reason God can establish a new covenant with such a secure promise as this is because there is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the ultimate mediator, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and there as our great high priest, eternally existing, he intercedes for our acceptance with God on the basis of his offering. And that offering is, in fact, his atoning blood. It alone avails to cover our sins and our iniquities. And it alone allows God to accept us in him. Because his blood washes out our filth, and his righteousness is imputed to us, God is now able to say, now able to say, now I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Without that mediator in heaven, we are dead meat folks. With him, God can extend mercy and grace to us, for there has been a just settlement of the issue. Finishing his long citation from the prophet Jeremiah, our author draws attention to a critical expression at the top of verse 8. When God said, a new covenant, draw the inference, people, the author says, you can see he's thereby made the first, the law or the old covenant obsolete. You see that, don't you? But in case I have to draw you a picture here, the author is saying, whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, I hope I don't need to tell you this, it's all ready to disappear, to pass off the scene. And disappear it did when in 70 A.D. the Romans, first under Vespasian and then his son Titus, finished off Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and thereby cashiering the whole supporting apparatus to all intents and purposes. This brings us to chapter 9. I remind you that our author is trying to shore up and stabilize their somewhat faltering faith. I'm talking about Jewish Christians whose faith is faltering in Jesus Christ. They haven't gone over the edge yet, but he's worried about them. Some of them have put their hand to the plow. They've started to look back to Judaism. They're beginning to think they've lost something. Apostasy is a danger. Though the author has already told us he believes their faith is for real, he has many evidences that they are the genuine article. But nevertheless, again and again he warns them of the irremediable consequences if they turn their backs on Christ. Part of their problem is that laxness in the Christian walk has led to a certain spiritual torpor that has rendered them dull of hearing. They are just not as dialed in to the things of God as they need to be. Consequently, it's a challenge to teach them. It's a challenge to explain to them doctrine of substance. 
so that they might mature in their understanding of the faith. It's hard to get them to recognize that in Christ they have the consummation of all the types, the shadows, and the hopes of the religious system that the Old Covenant pointed to. Nevertheless, our author has resolved to forge ahead in his teaching, and he's trusting the Spirit of God to cause it to stick to their flappy. From the get-go in this epistle, the writer's been trying to help these Jewish Christians to see that in Christ, all the revelation of God reaches its climax. He wants them to see that he is superior to every creature in heaven, above, and on earth below. Neither angels, nor the prophet Moses, nor the high priest of the family of Levi can compare in their glory and office work to the glory and office work of God's Son. In the context leading up to chapter 9, our author has been developing his argument. The law, the old covenant, anticipated its own temporariness as a religious system. It anticipated a day when it would no longer be in force in its institutions. The author shows that the Old Testament itself talks about a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, one that had slipped by their consciousness, and it's one that is greater than the priestly order of the tribe of Levi, because it's an eternal priesthood, and Jesus Christ is a great high priest in heaven after that order, so they could not be in better hands having a high priest in heaven itself to appear before the living God for us. Now, should anyone ask, I don't get it, what does all this business about high priest have to do with my life on Monday morning? Well, my friend, let me say it has absolutely everything to do with your life on Monday morning and forever. There is no approaching the living God. There is no acceptance with God. Hear me, there is no pardon for your sins or mine without a mediator, someone who can come before a holy God and a sinless person, and offer a sacrifice sufficient to satisfy God's justice and atone for us. It has to be someone who has access to God. It has to be someone who is acceptable to God. It has to be someone who can intercede for us, who can make atonement for us. Such a person is the only one who can represent us. That's the office work of a high priest. He's called a mediator. Mortal high priest appointed by God from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron with their offerings of ritual animal sacrifices were instituted by divine command as a matter of type or shadow and instruction. They were sinners themselves. They needed atonement themselves like those they represented. And their ritual offerings, blood of bulls and goats, could not atone for sin. But God nevertheless accepted True and faithful worshipers based upon that system. How did he do that? It was an anticipation of the true atonement that would later be made for them in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and true high priest of God's people and the atoning offering in one person. So our author has shown that the old covenant has built in obsolescence. An obsolescence clearly anticipated in the Old Testament. Now, in chapter 9, he wants to expand on the fact that the system of worship under the Old Covenant consisted in shadows that anticipated the substance to follow. The Old Covenant was just earthly patterns of the realities in heaven itself. So to turn back from Christ to Judaism would be something like dismantling a great edifice in favor of an architectural scale model. So in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9, he launches a comparison. He reviews first some of the leading features of worship under the law of Moses. The author is concerned, William Lane says, to develop the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant by comparing their respective provisions for worship. 
He will show that what we have under the terms of the new covenant is incomparably superior to any benefits we had under the old. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. He starts to tick off next a catalog of furniture that occupied the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary, all part of a divinely specified system of worship that took place within the confines of the earthly sanctuary. He reminds in verse 2, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, and there was a lampstand, a table, and the sacred bread. This was called the holy place. The temple or tabernacle was divided into two spaces, first the holy place, and then behind the second veil, they were separated by a veil, there was a tabernacle or a tent. This is the second part. It was called the Holy of Holies. It had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, the tables of the law that Moses brought down from the mount. Above the Ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Ordinary priests could enter this area when they were chosen to do so, like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. But only the high priest, and that only once a year, could dare enter the inner compartment called the Holy of Holies. He now proceeds to itemize the furnishings of the Holy of Holies, which we read just a moment ago. When it refers to Aaron's rod, which budded, that was a miraculous sign God once performed to signify God's choice of the family of Aaron alone as his priest, number 1710. And it was intended to quiet the grumblings of others who were envious of his priestly privilege. And the tables of the covenant were the stone tablets upon which the hand of God had inscribed the Ten Commandments and which the nation had ratified in agreeing to obey them. In verse 5, he goes on to describe the Ark of the Covenant in more detail. It had a golden lid, which was known as the mercy seat. It was there at the mercy seat the high priest would symbolically sprinkle annually the blood of atonement, the blood of bulls and goats. And there he would offer incense, which symbolized intercession. It was symbolically the place of propitiation or satisfaction or expiation of the guilt of sin. In his next statement in verse 6, our author implies that all these particulars were invested with symbolic significance. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters, once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle was still standing. The priests performed their ministries on behalf of the people of Israel in the setting just described. The picture we get is a constant busy cycle of priestly ministry of ritualized worship. But however intense in the performance of their religious duties, at the end of the day, access into the presence of God, even symbolically, was cut off, except for the high priest, just once a year. This is a point of import, for remember, we believers in Christ are, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, a chosen nation, just as Israel. And what is more, every single one of us, unlike them, is part of a royal priesthood. And as we are about to see and as the argument develops, we have unfettered access to God through our great high priest in heaven. But in the case of the Levitical priest under the Old Covenant, they had no such privilege, even symbolically. The author says, but into the second, the compartment of the Holy of Holies, 
only the high priest enters, just once a year, and not without taking blood, the blood of an atoning sacrifice. That blood he offers, first of all, for himself. That's because he, too, shares in the sinful nature of those whom he represents as mediator. And secondly, he offers for the sins of the people, sins committed in ignorance. Now, we are told that there's a sobering message embedded in all of that ritual, with its restrictive regulations as far as approach to the Holy of Holies was concerned. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is standing, which is a symbol for the time then present, according to which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Our author explains it. By these restrictive priestly regulations in worship, the Holy Spirit was sending us a message. That message is that unfettered access to the throne of God was not yet available by means of worship under the Old Covenant. That message is reinforced by the fact that only the high priest could enter the holy place. Here he means the Holy of Holies. And two, it's reinforced that even in his case, he could only go in once a year. And three, even his sacred officer rank still was not sufficient to permit the high priest to come into that place which merely symbolized God's presence without the blood of atonement in his hand. This situation where direct access to God by any and all is prohibited and severely restricted, even for the high priest of Israel, it's explicitly declared to be a symbol. A symbol of what? It's a symbol of the redemptive inadequacy of their rights of worship to fix the fundamental problem between man and God. It couldn't do that. The time then present was a time when both gifts and sacrifices are offered to God, which unfortunately are inherently symbolic and do not address the sin and the guilt issue on the inside of man, and therefore could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. That is to say, there was nothing about the blood of bulls and goats that could really cover sin. There was nothing about the blood of bulls and goats that could satisfy or propitiate the just claims of the law of God against the sinner. There was nothing that could really absolve the conscience of man of his sense of guiltiness before a holy God. So without a better sacrifice, the wrath of God still burns in holy indignation against the rebellious spirit and transgressive ways of fallen man. And sinful man is left with an accusing conscience that, like Adam, causes him forever to run from God and to seek to hide from his face. That's what the author means when he says that the gifts and sacrifices offered by worshipers under the Old Covenant could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. His conscience in this context refers to man's God-given moral awareness, refers to his sensibility that he's fundamentally estranged from God. And what all humans do to blunt that sensibility is either ignore its voice until it's bludgeoned into numbness, or to create for themselves, as did the Jews, an easier moral target, reduce the meaning of the law, or they reinvent God for themselves so that in some way they pervert either his nature and his worship, or akin to that, they dumb down his law, so that pleasing and honoring God becomes a matter of strictly observing perfunctory rituals and adhering to the law of God in a legalistic, superficial, external way. So the spirit of the law is ignored, and the letter becomes the moral all in all. But that expansion of the matter, that's mine, that's not the author's. He's concerned merely to emphasize that the system of worship under the Old Testament could not bring an individual into the presence of God that symbolically it advertised the very fact, by its prohibitions, by its restrictions, that the Old Covenant could not make the worshiper whole. 
It could not give the worshiper a perfect conscience before God that would allow him to enter joyfully with full assurance of hope into his holy presence. Dear friends, thank you for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word. 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure Just be sure the work is in the hand.